0: Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's Yolhi. We've got Jen back. We have our newly married colleague, Vox defense reporter Alex Ward. Welcome back. Thank you, thank you. So the Driesen family Thanksgiving managed to avoid any discussion of politics, thank God. But we instead discussed something that was far, far less cheerful, which was war with North Korea. And that's because we keep hearing comments like this from UN Ambassador Nikki Haley yesterday. If war does come... It will be because of continued acts of aggression like we witnessed yesterday. And if war comes, make no mistake,
1: the North Korean regime will be utterly destroyed.
0: That again was the U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. And that was on Wednesday, which was a day after North Korea fired the longest-range missile in its history, or as Defense Secretary Jim Mattis referred to it. Uh, it went higher, frankly, than any previous shot they've taken. It's a research and development effort on their part to continue building ballistic missiles that could
2: threaten uh, everywhere in the world, basically.
0: So that leads to the two questions we'll be talking about today. One, how scared should we be? And two, how does a country that has millions of people very literally starving pull this off? And Alex, let's start with you, because you've been writing about it a lot this week. What can this new missile actually do? And why is this so much different and so much scarier than the ones that came before?
2: When it was found out what this missile was, what it was accomplished, basically every missile expert was very scared and impressed by what it could do. And here's why. This thing traveled 2,800 miles into space. To give you some sort of comparison, that's more than 10 times as high as the International Space Station. The space station is about 250 miles high. Uh it went only about 620 miles eastward, and that's because North Korea, on purpose, shoots basically at a straight angle in order to for other countries around it to not feel like they're being attacked. Um, when you know experts look at this and think, "Well, what would the trajectory be if they actually actually shot it at America?" That would be about uh, 8,100 miles. Uh, By comparison, D.C. is about 6,200 miles away. So the eastern seaboard of the United States, the capital of the United States is within limits. And it looks like, looks like, North Korea has now mastered the ability to basically hit the entire United States with an intercontinental ballistic missile, which is why people are starting to freak out.
1: Yes. Um, So, yeah, I I think it's really important also that we talk about, and I know, Alex, you've written about this uh, on the website Vox.com, I believe. There's still, I think, a question about whether, like, we know that they can get probably get a missile to D.C., I think there's still the outlying question of whether they could put a nuclear weapon on that missile and get that to D.C. or New York or or wherever, right? Because I guess it depends in part on how heavy the, the actual nuclear weapon is inside the missile. So if it's heavier, it doesn't fly as far, right? Right,
2: right, right, right.
1: And then you also have the issue, like, they haven't proven the capacity— yet to get the nuclear weapon to necessarily survive re-entry right so like you were saying that you know when you shoot a missile even if you're shooting at the united states or, or somewhere else it goes up into space and so it has to go out and then come back in and like you see with like space shuttle and things like that you have to like re-entry is difficult because there's like a lot of friction and heat so to be able to survive that we don't know if they have that because to test that would be pretty difficult because you'd be literally firing a nuke.
2: Right. The only way to really know if you can hit the United States with a nuclear weapon is to shoot a nuclear weapon at the United States. Well, so I want to take a step back,
0: though, because there's a lot in here that's technical and could be hard to follow. And let's talk about the steps you would need. So first of all, you need to have the ballistic missile, which Mm -hmm. they now have. But much more importantly, in some ways, in terms of the threat to the U.S., You need to have a warhead that's been miniaturized, that is small enough to fit onto that missile, one because of weight, two because of just actual size. And so we need to be very careful as we talk about this and walk this line between, on the one hand, not being too alarmist, on the other hand, acknowledging that this is a legitimately big, big deal. And so the question in some ways now, now that they've shown they can hit the U.S. with a missile is, is the warhead, can they miniaturize the warhead so it fits? And that one, it's not clear.
2: Right, it's not 100% clear. It does look, I mean, the U.S. military intelligence uh, agencies have effectively said that North Korea has that capability, that they can miniaturize a missile. They just haven't tested that it would work yet. I mean, as Jen aptly pointed out, there's a lot that still needs to happen between after you shoot the missile, right? Uh, in space, for example, the missile has to detach from the warhead. The warhead, as Jen said, has to come back into the atmosphere. Um, and at any point, this thing could detonate and explode. So, but when you talk to experts about how far North Korea is from effectively, reliably being able to do that, they say soon. It's not very clear exactly what soon means, but some would even say as early as next year. Uh, And, horribly, and we might talk about it later, um, the Olympics are next year, early next year, and some are pointing to that may be a time where they might want to use that world stage to show off what they are capable of.
0: Right. Uh, Although, we'll come back to this a little bit later on, it's worth noting that North Korea could basically obliterate South Korea and Japan. It doesn't need nuclear weapons. absolutely, Just with a, with a conventional arsenal. But let's stay for a while on, on the long-range missile and on the warhead question, because when experts are saying, in this case, that it's a year away, what strikes me about this is we've been, as a country, wrong consistently, again and again and again, in how we assess North Korea. So first, it's, there it's three years away until they have an ICBM, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. It's one year away, it's six months away, it's five months, five years away. The numbers kind of bounce around, but the one consistent is North Korea is always better than they are projected to be again and again. And so when experts are saying, hey, it's a year away possibly until they can have a warhead that fits, they may have a warhead now just because of how little we seem to know about the country.
1: Right, and Jeffrey Lewis, um, who is a a nuclear uh, arms expert uh, at the Middlebury Institute, he's actually written about this a lot and said that... You know, So he's essentially been one of the few experts who kind of is on the other side of that, where he's always kind of pushing and saying, like, no, they have that capability or they're really, really close. And he's explained several times in pieces he's written that part of his hypothesis, part of why that happens is that it's— In some sense, kind of like a cultural slash like racial kind of bigotry that's going on and that we actually did the same thing with China during the 1970s. We just kind of assumed that like these people aren't as technologically, you know, advanced as we are. Like, you know, we're the ones that have this and surely, you know, and also economically, right? Like maybe they don't have the economics to, you know, they don't have the economy, the money to, the resources to do this. Um, but I think that goes to the point about, like, where we are right now and, like, how far away. Um, Jeff Lewis had a great quote, I think, to you, Alex, in, in one of your recent pieces, saying, like, what evidence, do, like, are we waiting for? Like, what evidence do you need at this point to start worrying? Like, do you want just a massive explosion at, you know, ground zero in D.C.? Like, that's, we're at the point now where it's it's so close to the finish line that you need to essentially act as if they do have that capability now in terms of, like, figuring out a strategy of what to do. So, like, technical things aside, it's so close in the broader timeline. I mean, remember, North Korea's been working on this stuff since literally the 1950s. And so, like, we're literally right at the finish line. So it, it's at the point now where you just need to operate as if they have all of these capabilities. And I think that that makes a lot of sense from, like, a, a military and a diplomatic perspective.
0: Right. I mean, it raises the question, of course, of, of what the U.S. can do. But let's go back to a point you made and kind of drill into it a second ago. Setting aside whether there's a racial component to this, it is objectively true that this is one of the poorest countries on the planet. Right. We were talking before we started recording. Last week, there was a, a North Korean soldier who defected to the South, one of the few who's ever done it. The North Korean soldiers fired at him 40 times. They hit him five times. He survived. And I mentioned that because when South Korean doctors started to examine him, they found more tapeworms, which come often from starvation or bad food, in him than there were more tapeworms in him that they thought possible to be in a human body of a person who's still alive, one of which, and I give you a warning, this is kind of gross, was a foot long. And so to them, this was like the clearest evidence of just how much starvation was hitting even those people who are soldiers, right? Like who you'd expect to get the most food of anybody in North Korea. And so Jen, like when we have that as the background, starving country, even soldiers who are starving, how do you develop something that costs billions and billions and billions, where as you say, we now assume they have it?
1: So part of it goes to priorities, right? It goes to strategy. Like, what do you value? What do you put your money in? So there's a famous quote, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, uh, who was prime minister of Pakistan and president of Pakistan variously in the 1970s. Uh, he was the architect of that country's, you know, nuclear program. Um, he once famously said in, in 1965 that Pakistan would get a nuclear weapon even if his countrymen had to eat grass. We will go hungry. We will eat grass. But we will get the bomb if India does. And I think Vladimir Putin recently said the same thing, uh, was quoting that about North Korea, that they will make their countrymen eat grass. And that's not a metaphor, by the way, when it comes to North Korea. They literally have to eat grass in some places because just to survive. Um, so it, it goes to the idea that that's literally the single most important thing that the regime thinks is vital to its survival. And they will do anything they can and they have because it's a complete, you know, totalitarian regime. They have the ability to control all the resources and divert all the resources where they want, and they want to put that into the nuclear program. Um, like I said earlier, they've been they've been in the business of doing nuclear research for decades. It goes back to the early days of the Cold War. Um, they started kind of looking into nuclear research in the 1950s and the 1960s. The Soviet Union um, was a close ally of North Korea. They were kind of in the the Soviet sphere of influence. And the Soviet Union shared a lot of of technology and and expertise and information Um, with North Korea. They helped them construct their first nuclear research center. So that's how they kind of got started. Um, And back then, the Soviet Union essentially subsidized the entire North Korean economy. So it makes a lot of sense there, right, where it got started. Um, And then the bulk of where they got, like, a lot of their technology and expertise, though, in terms of the actual nuclear weapon side, right, because nuclear— can be peaceful civilian nuclear energy. um, And then it can also be used for nuclear weapons. And that's part of the issue, right? Like you get the technology and it can be used for both things. Um, But during the early 1990s, Pakistan was a major, major player um, in, and specifically A.Q. Khan, Abdul Qadir Khan, in uh, proliferating sensitive nuclear technology. So uh, so A.Q. Khan is infamous Pakistani nuclear physicist, um, set up Pakistan's nuclear program, and he was involved for decades in this black market selling sensitive nuclear technology equipment to countries, including Iran and Libya. And he literally said, and he's provided documents to back this up that intelligence officials think are are legitimate, that North Korea actually bribed the Pakistani military to provide nuclear technology.
0: And and I think it's worth just pausing there and looking at the name, because when we think about the North Korean nuclear crisis right now, we're thinking Donald Trump, we're thinking Kim Jong Un. These are the names people recognize: Nikki Haley, Jim Mattis. But A.Q. Khan is worth pausing just briefly to talk about him as a person, because when we're, you know, as Jen was saying, you know, so eloquently, when we're looking at the roots of this, suddenly this other person enters, like from stage left, and he is a fascinating person. I mean, th- this is a man who was briefly put under house arrest in Pakistan, but is basically, you know, Jen, you know this. Really well, also, but he was basically a, a national hero in Pakistan because right. he's seen as having not only built their weapon but helped get their weapon to other people and sort of shown that Pakistan is a major nuclear power. He is thought to specifically have sold, and, and I think it's again worth looking worth. Uh, excuse me, I think it's again worth looking a little bit at the technology centrifuges that you need to enrich uranium, and so the, the very literal the parts you need to build a nuclear weapon. He's thought to have sold those.
1: Right, and it, it's, this, it's this weird kind of, you know, black market where essentially he would often act as, like, the go-between. So it's not that, you know, it was just this one single guy. Um, you know, he didn't have all the technology necessarily, but he would kind of act as the go-between and facilitate these sales. And it's also, you know— when people wonder, like, how did they get all this stuff? Don't we have, like, controls on this? Don't we have, like, sanctions and, like, non-proliferation agreements that, like, control this technology? And yeah, we totally do. The problem is that a lot of these technologies can be used for multiple things or can be hidden or described as other things. So, for example, um, North Korea ended up getting these, like, these metal rods that are used in, in centrifuges. And part of one of the shipments that they got them in was this massive shipment of like random kind of parts. And they were labeled as like something for bicycle tires. And it's just fascinating, because if you're looking at that, and you're, you know, a government official checking like a shipping manifest, you're like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Turns out that's totally going to build a, you know, nuclear, you know, something in a nuclear that could be used for nuclear weapon. And so it's really, you know, if you know the right people, and if you have the money to bribe the Pakistani military, and if you're, you know, you've got AQCON's cell phone number, okay, they probably didn't have cell phones back then. I think they Fax wrote. machine, probably. <laughs> Maybe, like, a, I don't know, Morse code. Um, but, you know, if you know the right people and you have the money, like, you can get this technology. Um, but I also, I think it's important to point out that North Korea did a lot of this indigenously as well. So a lot of their research— um, again, like I said, they've been doing this for decades. So a lot of the research facilities, they got the te- the technical expertise and they got the equipment, but they still had to do all this work. So they trained their scientists as well. So uh, in the 90s, again, um, Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, there was a- an exchange. So Pakistan supplied Pyongyang with civilian nuclear technology in exchange for some long range missiles for- from North Korea. And one of the things is they also encor- encourage North Korean students to study at Pakistani universities. So the, the, the training of your scientists is actually one of the biggest things that you can do in terms of, like, proliferating nuclear technology is just teaching people how to do it themselves. And North Korea did a ton of that. And just to kind of remind people, like, when we're talking about the timeline again, like I said, they've been doing this since the early 1950s, but their first successful nuclear test was just in 2006, right? So just from then to now, they've had, like, a dramatic— sudden increase in their capabilities. But you know they've been working on this for a long time.
0: Which I think is a really important point, in part because it underlines something about this that is often lost. Donald Trump does so many bad, stupid things that it's easy to just assume anything that has a problem in the world is because Donald Trump did a bad, stupid thing. That is both untrue and unfair in this particular case. Bill Clinton negotiated with North Korea. That did not work. George W. Bush negotiated with North Korea. That did not work. Barack Obama tried to have some engagement with North Korea. That did not work. And so it's just really important for us, I think, to to remember that this is not a Trump problem. And if anything, you could argue that Donald Trump has both been correct to make this the main foreign policy goal of his administration, been correct to say that this is an existential threat to the United States, and been correct and skilled in some ways at getting China, which is North Korea's biggest trading partner, North Korea's biggest diplomatic ally, to sign on to new sanctions. And so I I just don't want to to emphasize that point. This is not a Donald Trump problem. This is a United States problem. And and Alex, one thing I'd like you to just jump in on, because you've written about it before on on Vox.com, which is the arsenal North Korea has that is not nuclear. So let's set aside for a second the ballistic missile, the nuclear program. Let's go back to the scary point you made before about (laughs) the Olympics in South Korea starting in the not-distant future. What can North Korea do without nuclear weapons and without ballistic missiles
2: so first just to quickly jump on a bit on what jen said and, and that, that rolls into this is that north korea's gdp so basically the entire economy is about 12 billion dollars or so billion with a b which is very small uh they spend about it's, it's hard to tell but they spend about 3.5 billion on their military that's what 25 ish percent maybe more um math is not my strong suit but i think it's a little more than 25 percent. i mean it's a it this is something that they focus on very heavily, not only to give money and resources to the nuclear and missile program, but also to their conventional military. So, North Korea is the—it uh, is a country of 25 million people, but about—it's uh, the fourth largest military. About 5% of North Koreans are in the military, so that's one out of every 20 people. Wow. Um, it's it's quite remarkable. So, that's uh, 1.2 million troops. Um, by comparison, by the way, South Korea has about 660,000 Um they have uh, two hundred thousand special operators. They've got 130, 1,300 aircraft, three hundred helicopters,
1: uh, artillery too, right? They've art- got yeah, like, tons I'm, of artillery. I'm not, I haven't
2: even gotten to that. I'm Get saving, to the artillery. I'm saving Alex. that for last. I mean, the <laughs> artillery is the world's largest artillery force, and they are wow. they are uh, within seventy miles, if I recall correctly, within the uh, demilitarized zone, so the inter-Korean border. Um, they are able to just, if they wanted to drop a bunch of shells on Seoul especially, which is a, the capital of South Korea, uh, about 25, 23.5 million people on its own in that area. I mean, this could do a lot of damage. They've done some war games about what could happen, right? One of them, which, which always scares me, is they could drop about 500,000 pieces of artillery uh, within under an hour. Uh, that would lead if this were to start a war between North Korea and South Korea, for example, about a hundred thousand people would die in the first couple of days. Um, so I think we, yeah. just
1: it's really important just to kind of stop and make sure that yep. we don't like go past that. Like that's staggering. Yeah. Right. And and I think I just want to kind of highlight for for listeners the reason that we're talking about this is most experts think pretty clearly that if you know war were to break out that the most likely target, the initial target, wouldn't necessarily actually be the United States, but would almost certainly be South Korea or Japan. Right. Right? Because they're right there, and they have all this equipment that doesn't need to be tested. They already know that they can— and they could just flatten Seoul and kill millions of people.
2: Right. I mean, th- th- this the focus on the nuclear missile program is important, and it's scary. Uh, what North Korea can do now is almost, in a way, even scary. As you mentioned, they could hit Japan and South Korea now— um, By the way, I haven't even gotten to their cyber operations, which, of course, they, you know, hurt Sony in that horrible Seth Rogen movie. Um, I mean, man, it staggers the mind, which is why I'm sort of struggling here. It's just they have so many abilities to hurt in so many ways, and this is part of the reason why, when people talk about why the U.S. is... There's really no military option to go after North Korea. This is why, because North Korea would probably, and more than probably, wreak havoc in South Korea, Japan. It would go down swinging, and all of these horrible stats that I've laid out they will become reality in a possible way.
0: And and the death toll is so, it's one of those numbers that you hear and you could repeat and you could say it out loud, but just getting your arms around it is so difficult. The the world has not seen anything like that. Right. Anything like that since World War II. Mm -hmm. And even in World War II, there were only small, specific engagements, including the U.S. use of the atomic bomb, where you had a death toll like that from a specific day or two days. And if we're talking about North Korea doing this in a matter of hours, it's just, so beyond terrifying, that's almost one of those things that, that you, in a literal way, find incomprehensible. But I, I want to go back for a second to the U.S. Because unfortunately for South Korea and Japan, if this starts, there's very little they can do to defend themselves. They have missile defense systems that are short range. They cannot shoot down 10,000 pieces of artillery, weaponry that are fighting firing them every couple of minutes. But let's talk about the U.S. Sure. Because if North Korea were to fight a ballistic missile at the United States, at the mainland United States... When they have a nuclear warhead, and Jen, to your point, we assume, let's say, that they do. Or if they don't, they just want to scare us. What do we have that could shoot it down? And I ask that because old people like me remember when Reagan talked about the Star Wars idea. And this was, we were going to have satellites in space to shoot down Soviet missiles, and it's be really cool and awesome, and it didn't work. And we spent billions and billions and billions, and it did not work. So what do we have now? We don't have cool satellites in space. What do we have?
2: We have what's called, and I love this name, the Ground-Based Mid-Course uh, Defense System. Uh, I want to repeat that one more time because I think it's so great. Ground-Based Mid-Course Defense System, GMD. It's, so, it's such a great sort of wonky military name. Um, so there's a whole bunch of wonkiness that we can talk about when it comes to missile defense. I think the main point here is that if, nor- if North Korea were to shoot this missile, what we have is 44 total interceptors. You can call them rockets that have killer vehicles. Within them, uh, they... What, why don't you pause yeah. for a second yeah. and say what a killer vehicle is. Yeah, killer vehicle is... Uh, it's ba- like a
1: really sweet race car, right? It's, like it's a killer yeah, it's, vehicle, man. It's,
2: it's a rad ride. Um, it's basically like this really small engine that races toward the missile uh, and will detonate it effectively in space. Um, so... If North Korea were to launch it, what this system does is it basically satellites and radar and and heat signatures, they track where the missile is, or the warhead is, I should say, after the warhead is released from the North Korean missile. And then this thing, and by the way, if you're not you can't see, I'm literally doing like hand motions because <laughs> it helps me out as well. Um, the GMD will send these interceptors into space and they will, once they found it, they will go in and they will blow it up at what's called the mid course. That's why it's in that name. Basically, at one of the highest points of where the missile goes. The problem here is that we only have 44 total of those interceptors with those kill vehicles. Uh, four, Forty of them are at Fort Greeley, Alaska, and four of them are at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. We don't know this for sure, but one of the things that experts are worried about is that if North Korea were to, let's say, shoot 11 missiles at us at the same time, our doctrine is such that we shoot four of those interceptors at one ICBM. So if North Korea were to shoot 12, we're out of interceptors. Now, I should fi- I should finally end with this. I've buried the lead in a little way. Because I think it's so striking. If you're thinking, oh, well, at least we have a system. Eh, maybe. We do have a system. But the but will it work is still up uh, for concern because we've tested it 18 times since 1999, and it's only worked 10. And I can go into a whole metaphor uh, of baseball later about why that's not necessarily the greatest metric. But it makes you pause because if North Korea were to shoot something at us, we're not 100% sure we can shoot it down.
1: And I just want to say there, too, just on the, the testing, right, like 10 out of 18, like— That's not great. It's It's not not terrible. But here's the thing, right? Like, that was under testing conditions, right? Like, it was, you know, a sunny day where the military is the one also firing, like, the mock weapon. So, we know exactly where it was fired from. We know exactly what time. You know, we're all like, all right, everyone go. That's not the situation you would have in a real war situation. Like, we would probably have some advance warning because we have advanced like, detection systems. But I mean, we're talking minutes, right? So even in like the most pristine conditions where everybody is on the same page about what's going on and we're the ones in charge, only 10 out of 18 times.
0: And I want to just also make the point because I think people who follow the news closely, and many of our listeners do, will hear about things like the Patriot missile defense system, Mm -hmm. which became very famous during the first Gulf War and the endless Iraq war since. Saudi Arabia uses it. Israel uses it. There's another system, people may have seen the acronym THAAD, which is another missile defense system. And so you could easily follow the news closely and think, well, we have all these other systems, so why don't we use those? And it it is worth noting that the reason is because of what the unique capabilities of what an ICBM Mm -hmm. is. It goes higher, it flies faster, it flies longer. And so these systems can shoot down short-range missiles. They can shoot down little artillery-piece missiles. They cannot shoot down ICBMs. And when we're talking about what this might mean... We are talking about a system that is unproven, mm-hmm. that we don't have many of, that at, in a best case scenario is trying to pull off something that is also, in terms of the physics, extraordinarily hard. The way it's often shorthanded by people in the military is you're firing a bullet to hit a bullet, right? which is not an inaccurate way of thinking about it because an ICBM is flying incredibly quickly. You're trying to fire something that would fly equally quickly mm-hmm. and manage to hit it. And that is, it's not something where we should look at this as, ah, it's another bloated American failure. This is extraordinarily difficult. And in some ways, the fact that we have 10 that have hit is impressive. Then again, as Jen pointed out, the fact that we have 8 that missed under the best of circumstances, is sort of terrifying.
2: Right, and it's worth pointing out that this North Korean missile, and, and Jen can attest because we were the ones kind of following the the launch, it came at around 3.30 in the morning North Korea time. That's very rare. They usually do it uh, like 8 a.m. or later. And I was originally skeptical that they had launched something. But th- what that shows is that that is probably around the time they would shoot something if they wanted to. I mean, these nighttime sort of mobile launch missiles, that's when they they would... They would uh, strike. It's worth pointing out that an ICBM can travel about fifteen thousand kilometers um, an hour. Uh, my math serves me. That's uh, excuse, me, it's not serving me right now. But
1: I believe that's fast. That's very it fast. What you're looking That's for. very fast.
2: It's like it's actually like four miles per second. I mean, if they launch the missile, it would reach the United States, the continental United States, in under a half hour. It would probably reach DC under an hour. Um, which means that we our own systems to defeat them have to go about that fast just to catch up. It's it's quite remarkable what we're able to do to quickly. Use a Maybe to give some sort of uh, hope here on this missile system. Yes, I think,
1: please, because I'm starting to panic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's worth, uh, and I'm going to use a little baseball metaphor here. As Ooh, a, goody, sport ball. I know you love sport ball, but let's say um, Yoki is playing. Did they make a touchdown? They, they do make a touchdown and, and, and score a goal basket. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's say <sighs> Yoki is playing uh, baseball in the backyard with, with his kids, right? And he, um, and he is throwing, he's got the ball and his kids are at bat. If he kept telling his kids, I'm going to throw a fastball, they'll have a greater chance of success of hitting the ball if he doesn't tell them what kind of pitch he's going to throw a fastball a changeup a curveball whatever it may be then the chance then the likelihood that his kids miss the ball increases same kind of thing happens with missile defense you originally kind of start saying we're going to throw a fastball then you hit it then but, and then they go okay we're not going to tell you what we're going to throw we're not going we're not going to tell you if we're going to throw changeup curveball whatever so the chance, the likelihood that they miss that the test fails increases. And sometimes they do fail, but they at least learn something from it. So the hope is that through those failures, we've learned and made corrections. So if the real deal starts to come our way, we're ready for it.
0: Yeah. And I think the the point that I think we should end the segment with a little bit is the what can we do, right? Like we've talked about the fact right. that, that the missile defense system itself is imperfect, probably won't be able to stop this. Maybe it will stop some, assuming we're in the nightmare situation when they're even launched. So but let's maybe end here. We've got Trump and Nikki Haley both saying, we don't want war, but if war comes, we are going to obliterate you off the map. Then you also have the quieter side. You've got, well, we're willing to talk. China's sending envoys. China's sending diplomats. So we're still looking for a way back from this that isn't war. And Zach Beecham, who's often on the show, did a point a piece uh, fairly recently.
1: Being a co-host of it. <laughs>
0: that, uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that was basically making the point that perhaps the best we can try to, we, the United States, can hope for is containment. That we have to just accept North Korea will have a nuclear program, it will have nuclear weapons, and we have to live with it. Donald Trump is saying that the goal has to be they give all that up. That's never going to happen. And so then the, the real question is war, or we live with a nuclear North Korea. And you know all of us, because we're dorks, have studied things like containment theory, deterrence theory. And it's an interesting question. Like Do those theories hold they worked during the Cold War, right? Like, we accepted Soviet Union having nuclear weapons. They never nuked us. We never nuked them. And then the question fundamentally is, do they hold here? Do they hold with North Korea?
1: So I think it's important to explain, like, what we're talking about when we mean containment. And one of the most important elements is basically trying to figure out how to minimize the potential for full-on catastrophe, right? It's not saying, like, you know, it's in a way saying, like, okay, you're going to have nukes for the rest of your, you know, for, for the—, the Rest of the foreseeable future, right? But it's not saying, that's great, we'll see you guys later. It's about setting up processes to uh, make sure that we can minimize the potential for full on catastrophe. So, what we're talking about at the bare minimum right now, what we absolutely need to do is set up lines of communication, um, military to military, ideally. Um, this is the kind of thing we had with the Soviet Union, we still have with Russia, we have with other countries to basically have, you know, the proverbial red phone, right? To be able to, you know, lift up the phone and go, hey, uh, I, I got some sensors going off here. Did you guys just file a, fire a nuke at us? And be like, no, we didn't. Holy shit, please don't fire back at us. Because it's things like that that can actually lead to massive unintended consequences, right? So that the, the the biggest concern—I mean, obviously, you know, one concern is, like, they deliberately decide to fire at Nuggets, right? Um, that's obviously, like, one thing. But there's also the, the problem that we could think that they're about to, and then we could strike them. Or, you know, vice versa, because of, you know, maybe Trump tweets something that sounds really threatening, and maybe Kim Jong-un goes, shit, I think they're literally about—you know, even that, that Nikki Haley clip we heard, you know, if it comes to war, we will obliterate— the leadership, like, we will destroy your country, that's really threatening. Now, I don't think that's obviously at the level where they're going to panic and, like, fire a nuke, but the point is that we need to have those lines of communication set up so that beyond, like, public statements, the military can call each other and at least coordinate to make sure, did you mean to fire that, you know, whatever's going on? And that's the stuff we don't have, and that's one of the biggest parts of containment, because we still won't talk to them, we have very, very, very few lines of communication. I mean, we're talking, like, we try to, you know, have some of our lower-level diplomats bump into their lower-level diplomats at the UN and hope that we can maybe talk on the sidelines unofficially. That's not ideal for, like, preventing a catastrophe.
0: Right, and I think the red phone analogy is a good one. Making it even less ideal, of course, is that we are communicating by Twitter, right? So if you have... Right. If you have... In the, in a vacuum, if you have no way to talk, that's bad. But we're not in a vacuum. We are in a situation where Donald Trump routinely not only threatens North Korea, but personally insults the North Korean leader. And th- that's kind of where I want to close. This is not a problem that began with Donald Trump. This is not a threat that began with Donald Trump. This is not something that Donald Trump deserves credit for bungling. But it is a problem where his tweets unquestionably make it worse. And I don't know how you stop him from tweeting. And I'm not sure how you stop him from continuing to threaten. And as a result, since we have no way of talking, I'm not sure how you stop the possibility, not the probability, but the possibility of a miscommunication.
2: I, I will say just to, to that point, it is worth giving him a little credit, um, even though hes he is saying these sort of like fire and fury, as he's been saying before. And by the way, Nikki Haley's statement strikes me as— kind of very Trumpian, right? I mean, Trump has laid the groundwork for this kind of rhetoric. I mean, utterly destroy, if it would be the biggest news story, UN saying the U.S., UN ambassador is going to destroy another, utterly destroy another country. Um, But that's just kind of commonplace now. Uh, But where Trump gets credit is, and this may be because the North Korean threat has developed just so much that now everyone cares about it. But either way, uh, he has mobilized the international community to a point that it hasn't really existed before against North Korea. I mean, about 20 countries have either... um, but more than 20 countries actually have either expelled a North Korean diplomat or placed pretty heavy sanctions on North Korea. He's helped lead a sanctions regime, and by that meaning having the UN and individual countries place their own financial restrictions on North Korea, he's even put more pressure on China. And you could argue that China has even put more pressure on North Korea. These are things, these are developments that are, if you care about stopping North Korea, fairly positive. Uh, Although
1: there is the fact that it hasn't stopped them. Of course. And it, them. Right. It hasn't. And, and, and <laughs> to the, be fair.
2: And, and that all goes back to, I, I know we've, you've talked about this on the podcast before. I mean, North Korea has no incentive whatsoever to give up its uh, nuclear weapons uh, because it, it helps protect the, the regime that's been there since the 50s. So it's hard to blame Trump for not finding the silver bullet, but I think he deserves some sort of credit sure. uh, for mobilizing the international community as he has.
0: So this is one of those incredibly busy news cycles where you look around the world, it's hard to track. You wonder, how did we get here? And it's more important than ever to really understand what's happening in the world across a wide range of topics. And that's why we're big fans of the Great Courses Plus. We have unlimited access to learn from award-winning experts about anything we find interesting, and we find a lot of things interesting here. So history, science, language, photography, cooking, they have 8,500 lectures that go pretty much on any topic you can imagine wanting to hear about. You can watch them on a smartphone, on a tablet, on a laptop, on TV. You can hear the audio on the Great Courses Plus app. And here's the best part about all of this. Right now, listeners can start enjoying the Great Courses Plus for free. So here's one course, for instance, that you can listen to right now. It's a history of Eastern Europe. It looks at the the rise of the far right, the political upheavals, shifting borders, ethnic diversity, religious violence. That's something that's in the news and will continue to be in the news. Here's a way of learning more about it. And this is really lifelong learning at its best. It's like, You're in college, now you're out of college, but you can still learn more like you did when you were there. And we want you to experience it, to get a sense of what you can learn and how to learn it. And The Great Courses Plus is giving our listeners an entire month of unlimited access to all those lectures for free. Here's how you get it. You go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly to get a free month. Again, you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. For Elsewhere this week, we're going to talk about news that has been literally breaking on Thursday as we've been recording the show, which is that favorite of Vox and Worldly, Mr. Charisma, Rex Tillerson, may finally be taking his charisma, brilliance, and popularity out the door. This is something that has been rumored for a very long time. We should note that this is based on a New York Times reports saying that it may happen within weeks. Donald Trump changes his mind all the time. Donald Trump, despite his bravado, doesn't like to fire people. So it may not happen. It may not happen soon. But it seems likely to happen because we've known for a while that Donald Trump doesn't seem to like Rex Tillerson, and the feeling is mutual. And there are two data points we should cite before we start diving into this a little bit more. One, he's likely to be replaced by the current CIA director, Mike Pompeo, which has its whole host of problems. But the two moments, I think, with Tillerson that will stand out publicly, one, the reports that Tillerson called Trump a fucking moron, which I'm sure Trump, shockingly, didn't like to hear. And then two, that Tillerson, as we know publicly, has been undercut by Trump over Twitter, Tillerson has said in the past, we should talk to North Korea. Trump immediately said, don't waste your time. And historians, diplomats, those who study the State Department said they've never seen that before, ever, where a president undercuts their secretary Secretary of state so publicly. Because for secretary of state to be effective, the world needs to think he speaks for the president. She speaks for the president. Why
1: would you do that if you're the president?
0: And Rex Tillerson clearly did not. So let's start the impact. I mean, if Rex Tillerson finally is gone you know, Jen, you've written about this. You've thought about this. We've both edited pieces about this. What does it mean?
1: So, I mean, having Tillerson out won't necessarily, I mean, it, in a vacuum, right, depending on who gets put in. And if it's Pompeo, that's it brings, like you said, it's other host of problems. But in a vacuum, Tillerson out won't have like a ton of effect in terms of how our diplomacy is actually carried out, uh, especially when it comes to like, things like North Korea, um, because Trump— Basically runs his own foreign policy, like you said. Like he, you know, the, the State Department will go, Tillerson will go and have, you know, for example, he went and had a meeting with with like the Iranians um, to talk about something about like decertification on the on the Iran deal. And literally he came out and did a press conference and said, like, no, the president's not considering like decertifying the deal. And like while he was saying that, within minutes, Trump had tweeted the exact opposite. So Tillerson has zero credibility whatsoever with his foreign counterparts, which means he's pointless. He's just someone who exists and is there to kind of go to boring conferences on, you know, whatever. But it will potentially have an impact on the State Department itself uh, because, you know, one of Tillerson's, basically Tillerson's main mandate was to come in and streamline and strip down the State Department, you know, not fill these positions, not fill, um, you know, to that he put like a freeze on hiring and things like that and has completely like gutted the State Department. In part, that's because Trump also wanted to do that. But in part, that's literally what Tillerson was brought in to do. So it remains to be seen if, you know, whoever is is his replacement will continue that mandate or will have a different approach to bureaucracy, especially if it is Pompeo.
0: And and so there there are three stats on that, actually, I just want to mention briefly. And then Alex, we'll talk about Pompeo because thankfully you happen to have written about Mike Pompeo. Woo! Rex Tillerson has supported cutting kind the of State Department budget by 31%, which is mind-boggling. He has cut the number of senior State Department officials almost in half. So, and it, more damagingly in part, he has said that State Department will not hire young diplomats. And that's in some ways the lasting damage, right? Because you could fire people who are senior at the end of their career and that's scary. But if you don't then have young people coming in to replace them, that means the damage of Rex Tillerson isn't ending when he leaves. It's five years, 10 years, 20 years, still trying to repair the damage he's done, this will also be the shortest tenure of any sector of state ever, except for those who had to leave their jobs because a new president came into office. There's one line in the New York Times piece by Peter Baker, which is about this uh, detail in this plan to replace him with Mike Pompeo, that is really kind of extraordinary. And I think best captures the era that we're in for Rex Tillerson, where this is Peter Baker. And Maggie Haberman. Uh, this is, thank you, this is Peter Baker and Maggie Haberman, the best of their White House reporters, talking about Rex Tillerson and his possible departure. So they're making the point that this could be a a sort of public hint from Donald Trump to say, hey, get the hell out. And then they say that poor Mr. Charisma might want to stay because he wants to hold on to whatever dignity he has left. And that's kind of amazing. This is a former CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, one of the biggest in the world, who's now basically pleading to be able to not be fired and humiliated. But Let's say he is. And let's say Mike Pompeo, the current head of the CIA, gets the job. What do you know about Mike Pompeo?
2: So it's important to know, first of all, why Trump might be so high on Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo, as the CIA director, almost daily briefs the president on the latest intelligence, on what's going on in the world they have. What seems to be fairly in-depth discussions about uh, as as far as they can go, as far as the president can go, about world affairs. Um, and the president also likes asking Pompeo about politics and about healthcare and uh, just what's going on in sort of the domestic scene, because Pompeo was uh, a th- is a three ter- was a three-term member of uh, of Congress. So. Uh, there's a reason to have a rapport. Trump seems to like him. As to who he is, he's a smart guy. Uh, he w- went to Harvard Law School. He was first in his class at West Point. Um, he is known, uh, he's decently respected among uh, people in Congress and people who know him, uh, but he's known as a partisan. When he was in Congress, he was basically a firebrand uh, on the, the conservative movement. He was on the Select Benghazi uh, Committee and was pretty overly harsh towards Hillary Clinton and even wrote... I believe, co-authored sort of a um, separate report, even going harder on Clinton than the actual report that came out. Um, And most controversially, at his time as CIA director, he has defended the president in sort of political areas. If you recall, the January assessment by the intelligence community said that Russia had tried to influence the election. Um, Pompeo, when he's out uh, speaking, he tends to kind of divert attention away from that or he tends to basically speak on truths as to what that conclusion was. And so there's this belief- Also known as lies. Yeah, no, exactly. So I was about to say, like, he lies on behalf of the president. And I don't know um, why he feels that way, why he feels like he should do that, but it seems like Trump is is appreciative of this.
0: I mean, one of the specific lies which you've written about is that Mike Pompeo takes- a major Trump talking point, which is Russia didn't do anything. But even if it did, it didn't impact the outcome of the election. Mike Pompeo has said that's the intelligence community assessment that right. it did not influence the outcome of the election. Problem is that isn't a blatant lie mm-hmm. because in the written intelligence community assessment, they say explicitly we are not assessing whether Russia actually impacted right. the outcome like of the election. They
1: don't say it did. They yeah. also don't say it didn't. And right. he says they said it didn't. Yeah,
2: which is it, exactly.
0: Not true. So you know, you have a person who is, as you say. If you want to be optimistic about what a Pompeo era might be, he is not someone totally new to politics like Rex Tillerson. He's somebody that Trump seems to like, which is obviously invaluable, but he is a partisan, he is a liar, and he's someone who has been the most political of CIA directors in many decades, bringing that same mindset to the State Department.
1: So here's the thing. In some ways, that could be a good thing, right? So the thing, like you know, again, like Alex said, they have rapport that in and of itself is probably the most critical thing in terms of being like the voice of the American president abroad being silver tongued and having the ability to produce delicate untruths. Uh, he's essentially in a diplomat's job title or, you know, job description rather. So, you know, being able to kind of one, have the ear of the president to understand the president's mindset and share a lot of those, you know, similarities in, in terms of outlook, um, it could potentially be a lot more useful in the State Department context. In the intelligence context, it's really super problematic, right? Because, like, you want your intelligence to be not politicized, um, meaning you don't want the intelligence to be shaped by what the president or, you know, other clients want to hear. The State Department, you know, the, the Secretary of State is a very different job. Also, they spend a lot of time Abroad, right? Whereas like the CIA chief spends a lot of time at Langley. So, you know, the ability to be involved in politics in terms of like, you know, the scrabble on the hill and, and kind of domestic politics, he'll be somewhat removed from that in a sense by by being secretary of state. You know, he'll be in China and Russia and, you know, all over the place representing the president. So there are some, I think, potential upsides. Um, I think again, going back to, to the main point that. The fact that he seems to have a close rapport, it's similar to kind of, I think, in some ways why we have seen Nikki Haley at the U.N. be so successful is that, you know, she seems to have no qualms essentially like being as combative as the president and going out and kind of pushing these, you know, big Trump talking points. Pompeo also seems to have no qualms doing that.
0: And, and so there are two things that I just wanted to highlight because, Jen, that, that's a, a really, really important point. One— I think there are people who will be hearing this and thinking, wait a minute, CIA director secretary of state, what the hell, what does one have to do with the other? Why not just take like the agriculture secretary? I mean, they, they, on its face, they may not seem linked. But when you're CIA director, you actually are a diplomat. You are sort of a shadow diplomat because you're talking to the heads of intelligence services around the planet constantly. Definitely. You're talking to the Iraqis, the Afghans, the and a lot of the African countries where the U.S. is operating. So it actually isn't as jarring a change as right. it might be. But I think it's also worth looking at the Tillerson era. You know, he will be widely described as the worst secretary of state in American history. In fact, someone said that exact quote to our friend Zach Beecham about Rex Tillerson, that he is the worst secretary of state in American history. But there's one big thing that may change, huge thing that may change when this happens. So let's think back to when Trump assembled his cabinet, right? So he had Rex Tillerson, secretary of state. He had Jim Mattis, secretary of defense. He had John Kelly and Homeland Security, now the chief of staff at the White House. And they were seen as the adults in the room. And then when H.R. McMaster came on as natural, National Security Advisor, it was, you've got generals, you've got a former oil company CEO, these are adults, they're professionals, they'll keep Trump from doing anything crazy. And they haven't. they haven't. We haven't gone to war, but we have also alienated most of our close allies. We have sucked up to dictators and autocrats. And there's this one thing looming, which is the Iran deal. So Tillerson, Mattis, McMaster have all said, Iran is abiding by the deal. Do not get rid of the deal. Trump hates the deal and decertified it. Mike Pompeo has backed Trump on that publicly. The reason I mention all of this is if Pompeo goes to state, the person rumored to go to the CIA is Tom Cotton, who is a senator from Arkansas, he has a very disconcertingly long neck. He looks like a, a sort of robotic giraffe. <laughs> but, yeah.
2: A robotic giraffe.
0: Trademark. So robotic, robotic giraffe. giraffe is
1: the new Mr. Charisma. Oh,
0: oh my I'm ready. goodness. <laughs> I'm so proud of this one. Um, but he is as hawkish on Iran as exists. He has called for not only decertifying the deal, but new sanctions, military force. And so that's kind of where I think we should talk about this a little bit. Beyond Tillerson, you've got now an incredibly hawkish Secretary of State, an incredibly hawkish CIA director when the future of this deal is very much in jeopardy.
2: I think it's worth pointing out one one quick thing before diving into that, which is I would find it very hard to believe that State Department employees and our diplomats could hate Pompeo any more than they already hate Tillerson. I mean, the, the the morale is so low at the State Department.
1: At least they might be able to look this guy in the eyes. Right. right.
2: I mean, yeah, they, exactly. they might be able to see him. They, right. He might actually have a professional staff around him. He might actually try to get ambassadors. I mean, yes, there are issues with Pompeo joining joining as, as Secretary of State, but, like, it, it's hard to believe it could get worse. Right? I mean, it, I think we have to give that sort of credit, that in a way, this could have a net positive than anything else. Um, but yeah, when it comes to the Iran deal, I mean, it, I think it's also worth pointing out that I remember that great moment at the U.N. where Trump had said, you know, I've already made my decision on Iran, on the Iran deal, and I'll let you know. And then reporters asked Tillerson what it is. Like, he hasn't made a decision. What are you talking right.
1: about? Right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just these great moments of like—so so now— uh, it looks like they are. They will be sympatico. You could have the CIA director, Secretary of State, and the President sympatico on uh, on the Iran deal. And uh, for those who like the deal, that's not good news. Um, I will.
1: <laughs> I will also say though, you know, the same kind of problem that we had with with Pompeo being, you know, a partisan firebrand. So is Tom Cotton. Sure. Like <laughs> by any definition, he is a crazy partisan firebrand.
2: You mean giraffe? Uh, robotic Robotic draft, sorry. If um, we're going to use this phrase in the future,
0: <laughs> get it right out.
1: So, you know, that's, again, still going to be a problem when it comes to to the CIA, when it comes to the politicization of intelligence. And, you know, the reason why I use that phrase so often is that something that we heard a lot after, you know, 9-11, like, was there politicized intelligence? We heard that um, on, you know, especially around the Iraq War, things like that. Um, This stuff matters, and getting correct intelligence matters. It especially matters, again, you know, things like Iran and North Korea. Um, So if you have someone who's a big Iran hawk, there could potentially be, you know, unspoken pressure that kind of flows down towards your intelligence professionals. So, you know, even though they're trained to just provide, like, accurate intelligence, there's the fear that, you know, knowing what your boss wants to hear— being Tom Cotton and then his boss, the president, that you could shape the intelligence to come to conclusions that could end up, you know, saying that Iran is doing things that maybe we're not totally sure it is in terms of, like, violating the deal or, you know, gearing up for war or things like that. And that can become really, really dangerous.
2: And and let's also be clear. I mean, what I said earlier is that Pompeo speaks almost daily to the the president. If Cotton assumes that role, that means Cotton will be speaking almost daily to the president. If you listen to Cotton's views man, I mean, he's going to, there's no solution that can't be solved with a bomb. I mean, that he's going to almost be feeding the president, as you said, kind of what he wants to hear. He'll he'll be championing that maybe in a way more than Pompeo has.
0: Alex, I I agree with your point before, and it's so profoundly depressing that it's hard to imagine the State Department hating Pompeo more than they hate Tillerson. One thing about Pompeo, though, that's interesting in terms of what he might do to morale is that the State Department is its own beast, right? But so is the CIA. The CIA has its own culture. The CIA has this Sort of institutional pride that goes back to what it did during the Cold War. And it has been under attack by Donald Trump in a way that's never been seen in American history. I mean, he's called them Nazis. He's made fun of them publicly for getting the Iraq War wrong. And so if you're a CIA staffer and you've spent months now being publicly insulted and humiliated by a president who also went to the most sacred place in the CIA, the Wall of Heroes, and gave a political speech. And now talking you have about his
1: his, his fake electoral election, victory right. and his crowd sizes.
0: Exactly. Dishonestly talking about it in front of a sacred place for the CIA. And now you have a political hack potentially. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be too harsh on Pompeo. He's smarter than that. He is not he's not a hack. He is a smart, accomplished person.
1: Tom Cotton but, is.
0: Right. But so now you have Mike Pompeo leaving, Tom Cotton coming in. Tom Cotton is not an intelligence community professional. He's not experienced in this. He's a military veteran, but he's not an intelligence professional. He's coming from the Senate. He is as red State of America as you can have. He is someone who has joined Trump and bashed in the CIA, who mocked in the CIA. So if you're the CIA, you lose a person who may not have been great. You get a person who channels a president who insults you in a way that you've never been insulted before, which is to say, if I were to the CIA, I would be profoundly depressed by this.
2: And one of the things that our intelligence community looks for, I mean, yes, I mean, but one of the things that our intelligence community looks for is for the CIA director to defend the intelligence. And the information to the president that if the president goes, well, that's not what I believe. That's not what's in my head. The CIA director is supposed to go. That's what our intelligence shows. These are the facts on the ground. Again, to Jen's point, it's not clear uh, that one Pompeo has been doing that. But I would argue that the chances of the politicization of the information and the intelligence goes higher with Cotton in that role. And then you start getting to the point where Trump's own views of the world, Trump's own beliefs, uh, set facts start being even more reinforced in his mind by the people who are supposed to be the adults in the room.
0: And I think just as we close, Rex Tillerson was a disaster, right? There's, there's no question about that. But the Trump era is so terrifying that we may look back six months from now and be like, ah, oh, the golden age of Rex Tillerson. But yet there were moments where he was in the right. There were moments where Rex Tillerson said, we need to talk to North Korea. We can't bomb them. We need to get China on board. We can't just bully them. He called Trump a fucking moron. Also correct. A funky moron. But there was also the moment where Trump gave a political speech to the Boy Scouts. Trump, tra- the, Rex Tillerson had been the head of the Boy Scouts. He sees himself as a Boy Scout. Trump, after the Charlottesville incident where he equated neo-Nazis with non-neo-Nazis, Rex Tillerson was asked about this and said, the question was, does the president, in his re- remarks, are, is he representing American values? And Tillerson said... He's speaking for himself and his own values, and that infuriated the White House, and there was talk then that he'd be fired. And so it is worth noting that Rex Tillerson has at times shown a human decency lacking in this White House, and we may look back and miss the decency even amidst all the other failures.
2: I, I, and just I would say I don't think there's any question that Rex Tillerson tried to do the best job if he goes, has tried to do the best job he possibly could. He spoke pretty passionately on Wednesday at the Wilson Center about what he wants to accomplish with the State Department, what countries he wants to deal with. It just looks like he's been out of his depth the whole time, and only on top of that, handicapped by the president everywhere he goes.
0: And I think we should end there. This has been an extraordinarily newsy day. This could be an extraordinarily newsy couple of weeks. We want to, as always, thank our producer, Jillian Weinberger, our engineer, Peter Leonard, our social media manager, Julie Bogan, Alex Ward, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Jen, as always, for being brilliant. Oh, uh, always. Zach, who we miss, and we'll be back uh, next week. Um, we also want to just ask you if you like what you've heard, we hope you do. Come find us, rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcast. In particular, if you like what you hear, the reviews really matter. That's how people find the show. That's how people can communicate with us and to their friends that they like what they've been hearing and like the show itself. Come email us at worldlyatvox.com. Hit us up at Twitter with the hashtag Worldly. We read everything. None of these things go into a vacuum. Thank you all, and we will be with you next week.